0: Hello, everybody, and not to get too weighty.
1: Veg-cast.
0: But we have officially arrived at VegCast 80. Veg- Yes, it is VegCast80, coming at you with another full menu of vegetarian podcastery. And this time out, we are going to be conversing with Vesanto Molina. Uh, One of the co-authors of Becoming Raw, she wrote the book with Brenda Davis. The two of them, of course, are famous for Becoming Vegetarian and Becoming Vegan. And now uh, a look into the raw lifestyle, specifically the vegan raw eating pattern and uh, getting to the bottom of that with somebody that really knows what they're talking about. And we also will have a science fact coming up about the very phenomenon of animal testing and reporting animal testing, Uh, looking at that from a a very scientific perspective that may cast some doubt uh, onto the reliability of reports that we get about animal tests and, therefore, the value of testing things on animals intrinsically. And, of course, there will be a musical selection this time out. It is from E.J. Simpson... Uh, and his band, You Purple Virgin. We heard them a few podcasts ago. They're uh, going to be doing a number for us. And uh, we've got a couple of notes for you, all kinds of stuff coming up. So please sit back, relax, and crank up that MP3 player as we deliver to you this 80th edition of Veg. Now, as you might imagine, as the proprietor of a vegetarian and vegan-orientated podcast, I do get uh, contacted by publicists for different authors and so forth and have received quite a few requests to cover new and emerging books on the raw lifestyle. And uh, we have, as you know, done some of that previously on the show, but uh, not recently. Been waiting for uh, something that was really going to be the definitive work, and here it is. It's becoming raw. Uh, As anyone who knows Brenda Davis and Visanto Molina, uh, they do impeccable research and uh, really have a credibility that is unmatched among uh, most vegetarian authors and books on nutrition. And uh, so now Becoming Raw has come out, and uh, we are going to talk about it and the uh, value that it might have for people who are thinking of going completely raw or people who just want to integrate some raw food eating into their diet. We're going to go to that interview right now. Okay, right now on VegCast, we are pleased to welcome back Vesanto Molina, one of the authors of Becoming Raw, the Essential Guide to Raw Vegan Diets, that's just out from the book publishing company. Vesanto, welcome to VegCast.
2: Thank you very much.
0: And uh, this is, I should mention, this is co-authored with Brenda Davis, who we've also had on VegCast. And, uh, uh, of course, you two are uh, kind of the uh, the premier uh, authors in this area kind of doing the comprehensive uh, source book on, on different things. and uh, But I have to say, when you decided to do a book about raw food uh, diets and raw food eating, you must have looked at the landscape and said, well, there's there's tons of books out there about uh, eating raw. What made you say we should do a book on raw, and how, how are we going to make sure that uh, this is... You know, something that really adds to to what's already out there. Well,
2: this we were first drawn to the topic because there were some tragic cases of deaths of children on raw food diets. And we were asked asked to be expert witnesses in these cases, both for the prosecution and for the defense. And these poor parents had given their children raw vegan diets that they thought would be healthy, because, of course, what's healthier than raw plant foods? And um, the children, of course, didn't do well at all. And then um, there were court cases. The child da- had died. and So we, we were interested in the topic, you know, because we want people to succeed on vegan diets, and we were curious. Then we were also interested to do a book... Our last book was The Raw Food Revolution Diet, and we did that with Sherry Soria, who has a website, rawfoodchef.com, and a a chef school in Fort Bragg, California. And she did wonderful recipes, and we were um, asked to collaborate and do the nutrition section. Mm -hmm. And then when we got into it, we realized that there was a lot of nutrition, a lot of questions, a lot of very interesting topics because people are drawn to raw diets for very good reasons. So what we did was put together a book that shows adults how to be raw in good health. Uh, We didn't attempt to address uh, the issue with children because there isn't good research at this point showing diets for children.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, then let's uh, just focus on raw diets for adults. And, um, of course, uh, people who are eating vegan regularly... Uh, a lot of us are eating um, a lot of tofu or other processed uh, grains like seitan and so forth. One of the things that would arise to uh, somebody who was just encountering this well we're kind of eliminating a lot of protein sources. So now, really, is it time to ask, where do you get your protein?
2: Okay. Well, you can definitely get protein from raw plant foods. And that's what elephants do. They're pretty big. They got lots of protein in their bodies. That's what cows do when they're grazing on the range. You know, it's it's possible for humans and our ancestors before the advent of fire and so on, they certainly used raw diets. But where do we get that the uh protein sources now? They they ate a lot of plant foods by the way, over over history. Um, we think of them as Hunters, but they were certainly gatherers, and in certain parts of the world they were mainly gatherers of plant foods for mm-hmm. their dietary sources, the Anasazi Indian area. So, um, anyway, the protein in plant foods has a very high balance of, when you look at the calories from protein, fat, and carbohydrate, there's easily as much as there is in animal products, for example, in green veggies. and uh, nuts and seeds are also good plant protein sources. So on a raw diet, though, you have to eat more. So you're going to be eating a great big salad. You know on the National Food Guides, uh, a serving of vegetables is like half a cup, or for salad it's a cup, Right. probably made of iceberg lettuce. Well, on raw <laughs> diets, if you sit down and have lunch with somebody who's accustomed to being raw, their salad will... will look like something that was designed to serve a family of 12. You know, <laughs> <laughs> They're really big, and it's it's uh, made beautifully colorful. Um, anyway, so, but they'll get quite a bit of protein, but they're eating a lot of that, and so we find that the quantities go up, and also, of course, the types of foods, but the protein's there in the plant foods.
0: Okay, well, that does bring up another kind of question, which is um, you know, I'm used to sitting down with people who are are eating raw and seeing that they're they have enough to feed a family of twelve. And I, one of the questions that I kind of wonder is, um, you know, even if this was perfect for our our idyllic ancestors, in today's fast-paced, over-scheduled world, is it, you know, is it too much of a of an inconvenience to try to work this into your this diet into your your lifestyle when you have to devote so much time and energy to it.
2: Well, what we did in this book was was look at that as usual in our books. Like we, we try and be very practical and of course we are doing this ourselves so that we have to figure out the challenges, you know, go traveling, go on holidays, visit people, eat in company, you know, all that sort of thing. Right. And so we're we're both dietitians, Brenda Davis and I, but we're also people who address the practical aspects. And so we did work out a number of different types of menus. uh, And we show people how to meet their recommended intakes for all nutrients. That includes protein, calcium, magnesium, um, iron, just the whole spectrum, but on a raw diet. And have menus that are very simple. So this one you could take traveling. In fact, when I was in France last year, I used... uh, raw diet and had lots of green pea pods that I was carrying around in my pack and ate okay. oranges and just had I had a little mini blender and uh, so it would, made it pretty easy to travel so you don't have to be very complicated and some people eat that way and they do okay it's it's certainly from the outside quite limited but as you know when you start shifting your diet and I should say I'm a committed vegan uh, like I I definitely choose to eat 100% vegan, but I don't always choose to eat 100% raw. Right. I have um, explored how to do it properly, and in learning about raw foods, my diet became much, much more raw, and I got a great appreciation for it. Um, but we can do it simply, or we can be really gourmet, you know,
0: we can mm-hmm. be quite a spectrum. Okay, well, let me, I mean, that kind of answers one of the questions I had, which was whether uh, it, it's hard to combine two different uh, kinds of uh, of dietary approach. One of which really is uh, kind of an all or nothing approach because it's it's morally based, and another of which is kind of a sliding scale. Um, but you seem to be able to combine it all right yourself. So uh, hopefully, people reading the book will will be able to. Uh, take your advice on that. One of the uh, the things that we always hear about is uh, cooking, destroying uh, the plant enzymes, and then there's some people who said, well, that's not, that's overstated, that's, uh, you know, it's, it's actually okay to a certain extent. What, Where do you guys draw the line on
1: that?
2: Oh, we had a fascinating time exploring the research about enzymes. You know, do we really depend on the enzymes in plant foods for our digestion. Do they contribute a lot? Do they contribute anything? And it was a fascinating journey to discover. Uh, And we have like a whole chapter on plant enzymes, for example. We learned that some of the uh, information that's used to say you have to go 100% raw is not well-founded at all. Uh, So there was no backing for it and no scientific evidence. Uh, we also found that, that plant enzymes can contribute to digestion. For mm-hmm. example, when somebody has their smoothie for breakfast, the plant cells are broken when they blend the fruit. And uh, When the cells are broken, the plant enzymes start start going to work and start digesting. And so by the time you've got it into your mouth, and then when it gets down to your stomach, and sometimes it sits for a little while in the top little pocket of the stomach. Um, there can be digestion happening. And I had the good fortune to go down to the Anne Wigmore Institute in Puerto Rico and see what they were doing there. She was a real pioneer of this uh, raw foods. And I recognized they had a lot of pureed foods that for people who are ill and their digestive tracts are, are not functioning very well, that's... Uh, the pureeing that it can happen ahead of time can be a real help for people when their digestive tract is already struggling. Um, so that was interesting. On the other hand, our body, in in our healthy body, is perfectly capable of producing enzymes, enough enzymes, and all throughout our life. We don't have some finite amount of enzymes that, that we'll run out of when we're 73 years old or at some point, um, so there there have been theories among the raw foods world that we do have a finite capacity to produce enzymes and it it it's not true that you do run out of enzymes
0: okay so the um if it's not is an all or nothing thing i mean there is uh still certainly uh some advantage to uh you know to the raw diet, and you do have a section kind of going through the various ailments and diseases that uh, eating raw can fight. Um, can you just give us a quick overview of, like, what what raw uh, raw food is best at fighting, and perhaps what some people might think that it does, but it, it's not having that big an impact.
2: Okay. Uh, well, for example, the Scandinavians have explored quite a bit with arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, and fibromyalgia, and they had studies in the early 90s which showed that when people moved to a raw vegan diet their symptoms for example of rheumatoid arthritis decreased significantly for many people in the group now of course what happened when they did that they gave up animal products they stopped eating gluten containing grains they actually avoided the nightshade vegetables like potatoes but also peppers and they avoided citrus and And these are all thought to be possible triggers for arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis in some people. Uh, We have a book, The Food Allergy Survival Guide, where we address that, um, about the relationship there. So uh, they showed for arthritis and also for fibromyalgia that going to a raw vegan diet helped some people. Now, not everybody, but some found their symptoms were diminished. And, of course, uh, there's a change in weight that happens with raw diets. People tend to get lighter. So people who are overweight and have arthritis, that'll affect their, their knees, um, make it easier for their bodies. So they're not carrying so much weight. The weight factor also impacts diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and cancer to some extent, uh, but certainly diabetes and heart disease. that Uh, your risk factors decrease when you get more to an optimal body weight. And on raw diets, we find that you do tend to go closer to the ideal body weight range. Um, um, People can get too thin, but certainly those who are overweight get thinner, and that's a big advantage. Mm -hmm. One of the other factors is that on a raw diet, you eat many foods that are really health supportive. All those... Glowing, gorgeous fruits and vegetables are packed with phytochemicals. The colors in many of them are from protective substances that help us fight off cancer and heart disease. So uh, there, there have been many advantages. Now, on the other hand, if you don't do a well-designed raw diet, you can actually increase your risk of heart disease because your uh, B12 levels are too low, for example. Now, the last area with diabetes, there have been some studies that showed um diabetes uh, risk to be lessened on a, a raw or high raw diet Mhm
0: and that's um I guess that ties in with uh what Brenda Davis is doing now uh down in the in the marshall islands Islands, the, yeah they were they weren't
2: going all raw they were
0: well, right? but
2: vegan diets, but the raw foods are big contributors because they they just
0: support ourselves tremendously with all these colorful phytochemicals. Right. Well, just uh, one last uh, specific thing. I, I was kind of surprised at the in the discussion of fiber. It sounds like there it, it is possible to get too much fiber. And you you talked about how some people think we should be eating like the great apes. And you talked about differences in our physiology. And is it really is that a concern that people on raw foods Diets should have is that you actually uh, want to be sure that you're not overloading on fiber.
2: Well, um, some of the foods, um, it's it's not too bad of a concern with the fiber going really high. For some of these areas, there really isn't a great deal of research on raw diets, so we're not quite sure. Because it, when we've had a number of raw people on diets that have been, you know, a 20-year duration or 50-year duration will have a better idea. Most of the problems with fiber and nutrition are from things like legumes and grains, which are high in phytates. Mm -hmm. Raw diets tend not to have quite as much of that in them because they don't have many grains unless they're sprouted and, and legumes the same but uh there there can be problems in that phytate component that will bind minerals and make minerals unavailable.
0: Okay. Well, uh we're about out of time but I uh I should mention, you know, when you say there's not a lot of research this uh is a, a very well researched incredible uh book that I think is uh going to be a standard bearer in a genre where there are unfortunately a lot of books being put out by people who have a lot of passion uh, about this issue, um, but some of them have uh, perhaps given the impression that people who are raw diet, raw food adherents uh, don't always <laughs> check their facts thoroughly. So I mean, you have 40 pages of references in here, and uh, and you're both uh, very credible. And you, I should also make sure to remind everybody, you and Brenda wrote. Uh, becoming vegetarian. You wrote becoming vegan. Now you've written becoming raw. <laughs> is wh- wh- what's the next step? Is, have you reached a dead end in becoming, or is there? Do we all need? Once we master this, <laughs> what's the next thing we got to become?
2: We're not. We're not going to do becoming breatharian. <laughs> <Isn't it? laughs> we're, we're having fun. We we update our books okay. um, at regular intervals. So we will be working on becoming vegan in a while. Okay. Um, I'd I just like to make the point that people can put together excellent raw food diets, and that's mainly what we wanted to do is show people how to do that. So we, we showed good menus. We showed how to get every single nutrient. We addressed the different myths and really helped people do it in great health and to whatever extent they want. Just go a little bit more raw, go 100% raw wherever they are on the spectrum.
0: Right great. Well, Vasanta Molina, thanks again for coming back and uh, talking to us about raw diets, and thanks for being on VegCast.
2: Thank you very much.
1: Somewhere on the West Coast Malibu, somewhere off the west coast. I love you. Three tones has your head, Three tones has your name. Three tones has your eyes.
0: Is EJ Simpson's band You Purple Virgin with Malibu? And I'm playing that on this show because EJ himself, as a solo artist, will be doing what's becoming an annual tradition here in Philadelphia on Good Friday. He's going to be at the Dawson Street Pub in Maniunk, playing in its entirety by himself. Jesus Christ Superstar, and it's a performance not to be missed. Hope you'll get down there. We will link to his site on that so you can find more information and uh, see E.J. either by himself at that venue or keep up with his uh, latest peregrinations and combinations in other bands uh, that he is in, and just uh, get your fill of EJ Simpsoniana. I believe that is the scientific term for it. And speaking of all things scientific, it's time for the science. Our science fact. VegCast80 comes in the form of a question. And that question is, can animal models of disease reliably inform human studies? And uh, usually when I read you a uh, scientific report, it's in the form of a news article about the report. This one is still under embargo, uh, but it will be released by the time this podcast is released So, uh, at that point, I will uh, look for any news articles that cover this and link to those as well as the actual study that I'm reading from. Uh, This is a study by uh, various researchers in medical universities in the Netherlands, in Melbourne, in Edinburgh, Scotland, and uh, it is published in PLOS Biology. And the point of it is to look at the potential effect of publication bias in uh, the reporting of animal studies. In other words, the potential for the uh, results of animal studies to be overstated, the positive association of uh, animals' reactions to uh, drugs and treatments uh, to be more connected to those of humans than they are in reality because of the fact that uh, when things don't happen the way that they're supposed to, Uh, They can simply not publish the study, and since they're just doing it on animals, uh, nobody need know the difference, whereas in uh, clinical trials, you have a a higher level of transparency there. Let's just read some of the uh, pull-out quotes from this. The very first paragraph of this study says that uh, clinical trials with human beings are essential because animal studies do not predict with sufficient certainty what will happen in humans? Now, that's, I guess, a given that you don't want to just test something on an animal and then put it on the market. But uh, I was unaware of just how low uh, the actual correspondence rate is. Uh, according to this, about one third of the studies translated at the level of human randomized trials and one tenth of the interventions were subsequently approved for use in patients. So out of all the animal studies done, one-tenth of them actually lead uh, to anything uh, getting into the hands of consumers. Uh, Similarly, in animal models of acute ischemic stroke, about 500 neuroprotective treatment strategies have been reported to improve outcome, and they Uh, specify they've been reported on the basis of animal studies to improve outcome. But only aspirin and very early intravenous thrombolysis with alteplase have proved effective in patients despite numerous clinical trials of other treatment strategies. So that's out of 500 different treatments uh, that were forwarded to uh, clinical testing on the basis of success with animal studies, two of them have actually worked for humans. Then they go into trying to figure out the causes of failed translation. In other words, the causes of why it may be that uh, the results of animal studies don't translate to human beings. Uh, One is that the designs of some clinical trials have failed to acknowledge the limitations of efficacy observed in animal studies. Another possible explanation they give is lack of external validity or generalizability of some animal models. In other words, that these do not sufficiently reflect disease in humans. And finally, uh, neutral or negative animal studies may be more likely to remain unpublished than neutral clinical trials, giving the impression that the first are more often positive than the second. So this study goes all the way through uh, the phenomenon of stroke, how treatments for stroke uh, are tested on animals and on humans, and how publication bias seems to be a key factor there. And they conclude that it appears unlikely that the animal stroke literature is uniquely susceptible to publication bias. Non-publication of the results of animal studies, they continue, is unethical not only because it deprives researchers of the accurate data they need to estimate the potential of novel therapies in clinical trials, but also because the included animals are wasted because they do not contribute to accumulating knowledge. In in addition, research syntheses that overstate biological effects may lead to further unnecessary animal experiments, testing poorly founded hypotheses. And that's all I'm going to read of that uh, right now, but I invite you to take a look at that in our show notes and uh, I'm not going to go on too long about this except to make the obvious case that uh, these are actual animal lives that are being ended uh, often wasted as the uh, researchers here point out um, but even if we accept that uh, there is a uh, some rationale for testing things on animals because of the benefit uh, they can give to humans. I think we have to take a look at this math and realize that the amount of uh, actual scientific data that we can get from that is much lower than is being popularly portrayed, uh, even though scientists seem to be aware that in general you'd be better off flipping a coin and having a 50 50 chance at uh, testing a drug than actually testing it on an animal where you will have a 30% chance that it's going to actually be reflected in uh, usability by humans. So uh, just based on that, I would call on the scientific community, number one, to publicly step up ...and loudly announce that the usefulness of these studies is much lower than is being portrayed... ...and second, to immediately begin reducing and or eliminating all use of animals... ...for anything that does not have an immediate life-saving property for humans. Because if this study is to be believed... The non-efficacy of animal studies in predicting human results is a matter of science fact. Okay, just very briefly here, before we go, many of you VegCast listeners will remember Maria Pandolfi, the rat chick from Rat Chick Rescue, uh, from VegCast 45, uh, just received An emergency alert that she and some colleagues have rescued approximately 56 rats uh, from a snake food breeder uh, and need both foster homes and forever homes for these rats. If you can take in a rat or know anybody who can, contact Maria at ratrescuephilly at gmail.com. I'm hoping by the time this uh, comes out, some of those will already uh, have been placed in homes, but uh, you can always contact her and see what's going on there. And that is going to be about all the time we have for VegCast 80. Veg. And yes, that is going to do it for VegCast80. I want to thank Santo Molina for talking with us about raw food, raw diet, and everything raw. And thanks to Mary Ellen for helping to set that up. I also want to thank E.J. Simpson for uh, giving me a CD from which to play selected cuts Uh, such as Malibu, which we played this time around. And, of course, I want to thank you, the VegCast listener, for listening and subscribing. You can find us at iTunes. VegCast will be back with another full menu in April. And until that point, please get out there and live like you mean it.
1: VegCast!